Oh, before Mike, Mike Niebuhr is going to share with us today. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> okay, that means that some of you don't know him. Um, I'm going to let Kathy introduce him. <laughs> no, Mike, um, he'll, he'll tell some about himself, but for us, our relationship began somewhere in, what, 82, 80. Yeah, when he was in jail in Turkey, got out. He was not married yet. Ended up marrying somebody from over there. Elise, she's a wonderful girl. Anyway, he'll introduce her. And he came to the inn, and uh, he Matthew Hand, wasn't it? Or was it David? David? Ah, anyway. So that's where we first met him. And then, long story short, he got married. They took a five-month sabbatical up at the Sowerby's, and Right? Five months. That, it seemed longer. It seemed <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. So the, we then we uh, began to know them, and um, and they have come and visited with us. And uh, he introduced Stuart to his first boss. <laughs> well, not first boss, but anyway, that whole Niebuhr Makinson thing is crazy. Uh, a crazy, beautiful web <laughs> uh, woven. Now Emily works for his brother, and um, it's good. They. Precious. Anyway, went over there to Israel and visited with them. Uh, Rafi's Barbara <clears throat> and uh, just a lot of a lot of good good stuff. He is he and Elise minister in Israel, uh, particularly Palestinian Palestinian uh, Christians and and Jewish Christians, bringing that healing that part, and that's just one part of what they do. He also teaches sometimes and gives tours because of his knowledge of history of the area and his biblical knowledge is able to, really gave us an awesome tour, um, which was really good. And Kathy, I know you're going to fill in some blanks for me. I just want to say, you know, we hear about missionaries. We have the missionary board over there, and sometimes you get to meet them, and sometimes you don't. And you don't always know what it is they really do that you're supporting and giving to. And I know when we went to Israel and spent the time over there, we were able to see firsthand how Mike and Elise are just so much a part of life and culture in that country and that they serve and are connected in so many areas that I don't, can't believe everything that they do do. And they still continue to do. They have faithfully served for many, many years. And they are a blessing to us, to our family. Mike, come on. Elise, will you come with him? And, yeah. If that's okay with you, Mike. Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. So we, we come from a very egalitarian culture where nobody is better than anybody else. So standing on a platform makes it a little difficult. We Israelis pride ourselves that nobody is better than anybody else. And we fight about this all the time. So, 
And that has to do with lines and driving and everything. So I, it's hard for me to stand on the Bama, we call it, and everything. So Bama? this is my wife. Yeah, Bama. Bama is like a, a stage. Um, do you want to say something while you're up here? Um, <clears throat> okay, I want to say that who I am. Uh, I am God's child. Amen. Age 20, I heard about Jesus. And uh, actually, I am Armenian. Armenian people are Christian. And uh, I was born in Turkey, Istanbul, and grew up there. Uh, age 20, when I met Jesus, through believers that came, and through translation, I heard that Jesus can change life. And in that point, I wanted somebody will change my life. And it was so interesting, and I wanted to try. Here I am. I tried, and still I am in him. I love Jesus. And age 30, Mike showed up in Turkey. Lord put us together. Amazingly, we have four children. We didn't live in Turkey so long. After we married, we came state because I didn't know English. His Turkish was broken a little bit. But uh, this morning I was reading Hebrews chapter 11, talking about faith. By faith, by faith, so many things there are there, impossible things, but with God possible. And I look at our marriage. He didn't know Turkish enough. I didn't know English. But many confirmation, Lord called us to live together. And here we are. Lord opened the Red Sea. And he said, I am going before you. Will you enter in this marriage? And I said, Lord, if this is you, I want to enter, but I am afraid. He took away all my fears. In this area, gave such faith. I don't want to make it long. We married in Turkey. We lived here two years. And then we went to England. After England, little bit Turkey. And uh, again, America for one year. Eventually, we went to Israel. Right now, we live in Israel, last 28 years. And it's a home for us. Our children grow up there. They went to school. They went to army. Now, after army, two of them, we have four children, two boys, two girls. And two of our children are married. And uh, three, three of them are around us in Israel, very close, almost same neighborhood. One of them are in Hawaii. We are on the way to Hawaii because she is pregnant. We will have our third grandchild. All of them are boys. <laughs> it's because we live in the Middle East and it's a man's world, but never mind. <laughs> you can sit down. So let's just pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you. In the name of Yeshua, we thank you for the times and seasons that we're living in right now. There's uh, so much change going on in so many places. It's almost hard to keep up with it all. But Lord, we know that's because uh, you're about to uh, begin something in the world that maybe will even be the last step before you return. And so, Lord, we ask that you give us eyes of faith to see. You give us soft hearts to hear your voice. Lord, you give us wisdom about how to align and live our lives as a result of what you're doing on the earth right now. And God, as well, that you'd continue to fill us, 
Lord, with your love, even in a time that's going to get perhaps more difficult on the earth before you return. But Lord, as well, we want to keep our hope bright and burning because also we know that, Lord, it's going to be probably the worst of days, but it's also going to be the best of days. And so, Lord, we're looking with expectation for what you're about to do on the earth and, Lord, how you're going to use your body and your purposes in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, um, when we came here in uh, 19, was it 1990, the time we came here we were married, we came for about uh, five or six months here. We were here for about eight months. It was like a sabbatical. And uh, we were living up on Goshen Road. I know there's some Goshen Road people here taking a from Goshen Road. Then raise your hand. Yeah. You know, yeah, we, we know where you live. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that was a, it was a, it was a great time for us personally. Uh, it's a great time on one side. It was a, a very difficult time on another side because we had just gone through a, a real disaster in our faith. And what, one thing we, I said to understand, um, we had, we were in, a, we were living in Turkey at the time before we came here. And we've been living there about a year and a half. And it was the, just before Gulf War One. I. I don't know. People, most people in this room are kind of around my age. So you remember Gulf War One? Gulf War One changed the Middle East forever. And what happened at that time in 91 and 92, not just because of that war, but at the same time as that war, really shook up all the Middle East and started something that sort of even continued to this year. And then that same type of shaking that's happening that happened in 91, 92, around that first Gulf War is happening right now in the Middle East. I've, I've thought about this a lot because I went back to our time when we were here and we came here and, and a lot of things had kind of gone wrong. We set out with a lot of zeal, with a lot of vision. Uh, we were young. We were um, very idealistic and some things horribly fell apart. Um, if I could go into it, it's just things you wouldn't even be able to uh, imagine happened to our team. Uh, the church that sent us out from England, they said, listen, uh, uh, that was kind of connected. They said, listen, we're, we're done with the ministry. We, you guys need to come back because we're finished. Uh, the team had fallen apart because the other family that we were working with, their son at age two, got inoperable cancer in his abdomen. Age two, the size of a grapefruit. The, where we were living and working was... Uh, uh, we were part of a, a wider community and we were trying to start something new. But the people that were, we were working with were against what we were starting. So it was just things were going downhill very, very quickly. And when we ended up here, we would wake up on Goshen Road and look at each other and say, are we still believers? I mean, it was that bad. It was the thing where you had everything that you, you couldn't have imagined sort of happened. And, and it was kind of a time on Goshen Road where the Lord really restored a lot of I was out. Uh, I was telling John, I said, I just slashed and burned. I think Chris remembers this. I'd go down and get uh, burn permits from the store. And I was clearing out all that land on Goshen Road. And it was it was therapy for me. It was wonderful. But while we were here, something really unusual happened and that changed the course of our lives. And um, uh, we actually got in contact with the person that was involved in this just recently after many years. But we were up on Goshen Road and somebody showed up that was going to pray and uh, meet with the people that we were staying with, um, the Sowerbees. And this guy walked into the room and he said, I'm not going to pray for you, Roy, because I had a dream about you. And he was pointing at me. And they said, I saw you in a dream yesterday. You were running a long distance race. And I said, this guy has no idea. I was a marathon runner in college. I was going to do more marathons after that. It was a big part of my sort of growing up in my family with sports. And he started to give very clear details about my past and about things in my future. It wasn't just like a, one of those encouraging, comforting, edifying words. It was very directive. He 
He says, you're Jewish. You're going back to Israel. You're going to use Israel as a base. You're going to go out. You're going to rescue them. You're going to bring them back. You're going to go out and back. And in a way, that's sort of framed the last 28 years of our life of moving from Israel into the Muslim world. Now, when we got there, we didn't even know when we first got there in 1992, we had actually they said, I remember sitting still to this day, John and the elders were sitting in his office said, we're not sending you to Israel. We're releasing you to the to the destiny that God has on your life. Because as a Jew, to go back and live in the land of Israel is a big thing. And so them saying that, I wasn't even so sure that I believed that that's what we should do. But they were convinced. They said, we're releasing you uh, to go to Israel. And, uh, you know, we were at a place, a very tender and sensitive place in our walk with the Lord. I didn't even know if I could really do what God was calling us to do. I didn't have all the light. I didn't have all the understanding. Our kids were little. Um, and, you know, we were taking a huge step. And when I started to share what I believed that God was saying to us about using Israel to go to the rest of the Muslim world, they said, you can't do that. You can't do that. We have no, we've never heard anybody doing this. We have no framework. We have no one to even to, to connect you with that's done this. And so I realized, I said, oh, no, we're going to try something that, no, not, that has never been tried before without any experience of doing it. And nobody else has heard of it. When we got there, the other people said to me, you can't go to the Muslim world. You have to stay here and reach your Jewish brothers. I said, well, we'll be here for sure, but we have to be obedient to what God's called us. And how this came about was also a very interesting story. When we were living in England before we had gone to Turkey and before we'd even got here, somebody shared with me a very unusual scripture. He said, you know, uh, I read this scripture in the prophets. Now, reading scriptures in the prophetic words, in the prophetic books, is not an easy thing always to understand. They have to do with sometimes with judgments and points of history and uh, things that kind of we, even, we have trouble even putting into context. But the one he pulled out was from this chapter in Isaiah 19 that talked about a highway. Now, if you've read through the book of Isaiah any number of times, you'll, you'll know that this word highway is all throughout. It actually appears eight or nine different times in the book of Isaiah, where God is going to build a highway, a highway for the king, a highway for his people, a highway of holiness. There's a road called, and it's, we're thinking, when you hear the word highway, you're thinking probably of roads and cars and everything like that. And obviously that wasn't going on. Maybe there was chariots. I'm not sure. But in the Middle East at that time, that word highway that he was using is a word that actually uh, is, means an, an elevated or an exalted road. And this guy from England comes to me. We were in London at the time. I still remember there are things in your life. You remember this exact time when things happened. He came to me and he said, you know, I read the scripture in Isaiah 19:23. And in Isaiah 19, you can turn to it. It says, in that day, there will be a highway. In that day, there'll be a highway. Egypt will go to Assyria. Assyria will go to Egypt. And Israel will be together with the Egyptians and the Assyrians, a blessing in the midst of the earth. And we didn't quite understand when he said it. He said, you know what? He said, your wife's Armenian. That's where ancient Assyria was. You're Jewish. That's Israel. And I'm going to Egypt. He was going to Egypt at the time. He goes... Let's build a highway. I kept looking at the verse and I thought, this is incredible. Where, where did this come from? How did he find this? And what, why it's so unusual, if you look at it, is that it describes people that are part of God's redemptive purpose that were not part of God's redemptive purpose anywhere in the Bible up until that time. So when he says to me, blessed be Egypt, verse 25, my people, blessed be Egypt, my people. Wait a minute. Who's my people up until that time? 
Only Israel. Then he says, Assyria, my handiwork. Well, who's my handiwork up in that time? Only Israel. And then he says, Israel, my inheritance. And these three will be a trio. That's a better word. The English word isn't so good that it's on there. But the best word would be a trio. These three will be together one, a blessing in the earth. Now, what's improbable and impossible and unimaginable about this scripture is not only the fact that other nations are now involved in God's redemptive work on the earth, is that these people that are enemies, and this is when Isaiah was writing, they're in a war. Now, we've just gone through one of the most difficult wars that the world has seen since World War II in the Middle East, right on the borders of Israel and right on the borders of most of the, the countries that I have worked in. Why? Because when we came here in 1984 and 95, he said, from jail to the end of the last resort. I, got, I always think that that's funny when they say it. They went from jail to the end of the last resort. I think they were two of the same things. But anyway, so when we, got, when, when we came here, Lot was a, was a guy that I worked with, ended up working with for about 15 years. He was the best man at my wedding. We were totally focused on the Kurdish peoples of the Middle East. That was our focus, the Kurds, the Kurdish-speaking Muslims in the Middle East. And a lot of this, the whole war that's going on and what's happening right now when you open probably, you know, your, your news on your phone this morning or you got the paper was what's happening in northern Syria right now with the Kurds. And part of it is a result of uh, what our president decided quite quickly has now put a whole group of Christians and newborn Christians at risk of their life. And also very much tarnished the reputation of the United States in the Middle East because of the way they've done this. So we're, we're actually in the middle of a, a very difficult season again for the Kurds. I don't know what it exactly means. I'm trying to understand it. And oftentimes, even when we're looking at scripture, it's hard to understand when things are happening in the prophetic, you know, that seem to be almost disastrous. And yet, one of the main messages of the prophetic books is God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the nations. We might not understand. We might get confused. It might look upside down. It might look very difficult. But God is sovereign among the nations and among his people. And this scripture in Isaiah 19 that uh, I'm talking to you about right now is really, really interesting for the fact that here are these nations that are at war. Here is a judgment. And if you've looked through, you could go back and we don't have time today. But if you go back and read through Isaiah 19, you'll see that it's all in the context of God judging the nation of Egypt. Actually, Isaiah 13 through 22 is all about judgments about nations. And you have those sections in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah and in Isaiah. And in this judgment, all of a sudden there's a narrative. He's judging the economic situation, the Nile. He's judging their religion. He's, the gods of Egypt are going to bow down. He's judging their political leaders. They'll come under a cruel taskmaster. So he's got three different judgments that he's meeting out to the Egyptians. But right in the middle at verse 16, everything changes. And he says, in that day, in that day, and he just changes the narrative. Starts talking about an altar in the land of Egypt. Worship in the land of Egypt. Them speaking the language of Canaan. He talks about them striking Egypt and healing Egypt, sending a savior. Them crying out. It's almost the same narrative that was going on while the Israeli, the Jewish people were in Egypt. They cried out and God sent a deliverer. But here you have God entering into the history of another nation that's not part of his narrative all through the Hebrew Bible. And then they're part of it. 
And not only are they part of it, they're bringing in another great empire, Assyria, that was like the Islamic state of its day, that was just doing, you know, damage everywhere around the Middle East. And they're now part of God's purpose, too. We have a simple adage that describes all relationships in the Middle East. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. We make our alliances based on our common enemies. Now, you might think that's funny, but actually you do that. We do that a lot here in the United States, too. We often get together with people based on what we don't like. Let me give you a piece of advice. Don't do that. That's a bad way to make friendships. That's a bad way to make relationships. And here's one other thing. It's a bad way to start churches. And yet many churches start in that way. In fact, that's why we're Protestants. (laughs) We don't even know what we're we're protesting against anymore, but we're still Protestants. And in a way... We have to kind of undo that because that's one of the many of the great rifts and one of the things that when you're in the Middle East and they say to you, okay, well, I get this Jesus thing. I see the love of God. I read this angel or this Brit Chadashah, this new covenant, and I see the love of God. And then they'll start to ask you questions. What about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? What about the, the whole? I mean, what about all these things? that have, What about these things that were de- done in the name of Jesus in the Middle East? What about, wait a minute, there's, Rome, there's Catholic, there's this. I mean, how, how did, what happened here? And you realize that our history oftentimes has not necessarily done justice or really sanctified the name of Yeshua among the nations. Um, most of you probably know because he's from around these parts, but um, a good, uh, not almost a colleague and a friend of mine, Dr. Michael Brown wrote a book in 1991 that everyone who is a, a Christian needs to read. He just updated it. It's his only book that's never gone out of print. It's called Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. It's the tragic history of you know, the Christian church and its relationship with the Jewish people. And the fact that over the last 20 years, even since he wrote that book, there has been numerous people that have come and expressed, hey, look, our history isn't good. We did stuff in the name of Yeshua that wasn't right. That's changed the whole relationship between evangelical Christians and Jewish people. So much so that if you read studies right now that are being done about, or, or um, what's it called? Um, they do like uh, surveys that they do among people and their attitudes towards this and that. Among Jewish people, both in North America and in Israel, you would be shocked to hear what now they're saying. And that's only in the fact that in the last 30 years, Christians have come to the realization that they did horrible things to the Jewish people throughout history that need to be accounted for and needed to be confessed. And that's changed the whole dialogue and relationship between Jewish people. I was involved in one of those. I saw and heard things spoken because people were willing to apologize. In the Middle East, we never take responsibility for our faults. Never. It's kind of like the South in that way, maybe. But everybody else's problems are a result of what somebody else did to us. In fact, we'll have an argument about why somebody was late or something like that. And I remember this one time, this guy said, listen, I'll take the blame this time. You take it next time. Because we could, nobody just will take blame. And there's, a, there's actually a great Turkish proverb that says, even if guilt were made of sable, the Turk would never wear it. But that relates to the whole <laughs> Middle East. We just don't confess anything. So when Christians started to come in in the 90s and the early 2000s and started to say, hey, look, things were done. Even the Pope came out and said something. Hey, look, we've done some things that were not right and we want to honor you as the older brother. 
that broke something in the atmosphere over our country. And it's changed the whole way that Christians and Jews relate. Now, we still are waiting for the fulfillment of Romans 11 in our nation, for Jewish eyes to be opened to their Messiah. But if you read carefully the book of Revelation, the followers of Yeshua and the Jewish people have the same destiny all through there. And that needs to be carefully accounted for because that means at some point there's going to be something that draws us together. And that, that, you know, that one new man comes back in a real new way. But this scripture in Isaiah 19 caught our attention so much because it's so much, it looked like the Middle East with the way it is today. And yet, Isaiah's seen this incredible vision about all these people relating together, worshiping together, serving God together, being a blessing in the midst of the earth. And so, most of you know that, you know, the Middle East is not an easy place for um, Christians and, and evangelism and everything. I'm trying to st- not say the M word. The M word is a very not, n- nasty word and naughty word in the Middle East. So I don't, I, I don't use it in my vocabulary. I can tell you that why later. And usually I've never referred to myself as a missionary. I have a job there. I'm paid. I have a position. And we don't use the M word in the Middle East. So it, it, anyway, never mind on that. So, so it's, it's kind of has a, um, it's, it's a difficult place in, in terms of the gospel. Let's just say that. And when we read the scripture, we said, wait a minute here. This is a great, this is not just a framework. This is, sorry, this is not just a prof- prophecy that will be fulfilled. This is actually a framework for doing ministry. So all of a sudden in the 90s, and early 2000s, even up today, there's people coming from all over the world that said, I read this scripture in Isaiah 19. And I'm here. I want to do it. How can I get on this highway? Where is it? <laughs> and they said, and, and you have the answer. And like, we didn't really know too much at all. We were just saying, hey, this is just an amazing verse. We're just excited about what God's going to do in reconciling enemies. We don't really know how this works out. We're just trying to kind of, you know, we're discovering it ourselves. Actually, we figured out that a lot of it was just how you, you know, we, I married into it. So I kind of had to kind of work it out at some point just in our marriage. But... Um, we said, you know what, we got to somehow figure out we can share this with people. So um, I'm going to play you a short video that we put together that kind of describes this, this whole vision and puts it in and uh, just kind of gives you an idea of what the Middle East is like. So play the video. Go on. When we see the reports coming out of the Middle East, it's easy to give up hope. Most of us either pick a side or just ignore the chaos altogether. But have you ever noticed how it takes work to ignore the Middle East? It has this strange habit of finding its way to the front of the stage, and maybe for good reason. What if it's meant to grab our attention? If you're a person of faith, then it's likely your story actually begins in the Middle East, where a guy from southern Iraq named Abram heard the voice of God call him to begin a journey. In obedience, he set out and walked an ancient highway in search of a land God had promised. In the midst of his journey, God changed his name to Abraham and promised to multiply his descendants and make him the father of many nations. Abraham had two sons, each with a prophetic destiny. To Ishmael, the son of Hagar, God promised a blessing and twelve sons who would reign in the region but experience conflict with their brothers. To Isaac, the son of Sarah, and his descendants, God gave the land of Canaan and a promise that the whole world would experience blessing through his family line. So here lie the roots of today's conflict, a family story that has dissolved into deep dysfunction. 
Fast forward thousands of years and you can see the modern day Jewish people, the descendants of Isaac, living in the land God had promised. And the modern day Arab peoples, some who are the descendants of Ishmael, living along the same highway that their father Abraham had traveled. And the hostilities remain. But this is not the end of the story. The Hebrew prophet Isaiah looked through the chaos of his time, even through the chaos of our time, and saw something on the other side. He saw the same highway Abraham walked, not as a source of conflict, but a source of blessing for the whole earth. He wrote, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. The Hebrew word that Isaiah used for highway is Mesilah, which actually means an elevated road. So, maybe there is an elevated way to obtain peace and experience real reconciliation in the Middle East. Maybe the highway that Isaiah saw actually starts in the heart. You see, God loves Isaac and God loves Ishmael. In fact, God loves all the people and all the nations of the Middle East. And he is absolutely determined to make them, to make us a united family again. This is the hope for the Middle East. The same story that foresees the conflict also promises its resolution. That's why today there are Egyptians, Israelis, Arabs and Turks, people from the Middle East and around the world who are joining together to raise up this elevated way. They are serving, praying, loving, and living in such a way to see this highway of hope, worship, and reconciliation become a reality in our lifetime. Because the truth is, God said there will be a highway. And right now, you and I are invited to help Him build it. All right. Yeah, no, they, we took a long time to kind of try to condense this message into about three or four minutes. So how does this affect you? How does this affect what's going on right now? Even as you're, you know, watching news reports come out, I just want to I mean, you're going to hear things that are going to go on and they're going to hear things that come out in the news that sound very, very tragic. At the same time, I don't know if we've witnessed so many Muslims coming to faith at any other time in history than we have right now. And not only that, when a Muslim comes to faith in in Yeshua, in Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, he, he all of a sudden now wants to come to Israel he wants to meet with his Messianic Jewish brothers. He's broken every single uh, rule and everything like that. So he's ready to do anything. And so bringing these people all together and getting them to do projects together and getting them to, to participate together has been kind of our life's journey. Bringing these people that were actually enemies together and then doing stuff. And you know what? This is part of, I believe, this whole um, uh, sort of story that's running through Romans. All through the book of Romans, he's talking about this amazing thing that's going to happen with the Jewish people that when even though their rejection was the reconciliation of the earth, their acceptance will be light from the dead. He's also talking about that he's going to use the nations to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. Now, what we've seen is a lot of times when Muslims come to faith and they want to come. They just there's it's shocking. 
to Israelis that there's people that they're enemies that now love them and want to come to their country and even will say to me, I don't just want to come and see where Jesus walked. I want to come. I want to die here. I mean, that's their thing. They're they're passionate now. They've left everything. At the same time, God's doing something in the hearts of the Jewish people because their calling ultimately is to be a light to the nations. They haven't just come to this land on the eastern part of the Mediterranean to live there and die. No, they've come there because it's the call of Abraham to go to this place. And from there, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so, in a way, we've sort of been, our, our job is to envision and mobilize once these Muslims are provoking them to jealousy to now go back out. So it's kind of like God's doing it in both ways in a very unusual way. And now Jewish people are now traveling to Jordan, to Egypt, to Turkey, even to northern Iraq to share their faith with Muslims. So we live in a really a new day. You wouldn't hear this about this, any of this on the on the news. You know, but right now there's over probably conservative. It's going to be one between one million and three million Muslims that have come to faith in Iran. It's an amazing, amazing story. In fact, it just came out. There was just a film that came out. Some friends of ours just completed. It's called Sheep Among Wolves, Part Two. You can go on the Internet. You can watch it. It's about it's about an hour and a half, two hour long film. It talks about how this movement among Muslims has started, mostly led by women. Mostly in house groups, mostly underground and uh, spreading all throughout Iran, all throughout Turkey, where Iranians are living in big numbers and all throughout Europe. At the same time, there's also a strong movement of Muslims coming to faith in Egypt. And a lot of this has to do with a whole movement that started in prayer in the 90s and has continued to go. There's been a massive amount of concentrated prayer into the Middle East. And people might think, well, we're just praying. No, your praying has been filling up the bowls of intercession in heaven. And as a result, things are changing and switching like I've never seen before. And that I thought I would see in my life. In a few years, you might be able to take a trip to Saudi Arabia to go visit the mountain of Moses. Up until now, nobody, if it was not a Muslim, could even touch their feet practically on Saudi Arabian soil. And soon the Saudi Arabian government is going to open up for tourism for Jews and Christians to visit this country. So things are shifting and shaking like you would not believe all over. And in a way, people's kind of old visions and and worldviews and things are are completely shaken up. And in a way, this is very unsettling to most people. It's very unsettling. It's unsettling for us. I think this has been a season when there's been great change. And I believe that God is refining all over the world his body for the next season that we're about to walk into. And as I started to look at this theme throughout Scripture, and it is a big theme throughout Scripture that begins even in John 15 and goes all throughout the letters of Paul, all throughout Paul's life, is that the the proof that we are true sons and daughters of the Father is that He disciplines us. That's our that, that not that this, I mean, I, I love the love of God. I'm sure everybody else loves the God and we can sing about the love of God all day. I don't hear too many things. Oh, God, we just thank you for the discipline. No, but that's the way we know that we are true sons is that we are disciplined and daughters, that we are disciplined by him. And so we should welcome it. We should welcome it in our lives. It's John chapter 15. You know, every branch he prunes. And all throughout receive hardship. As discipline from the Lord. Because he's bringing, you know, in, in a way, that's I think he's predestined us to become into the image of a son. Romans eight twenty nine, But we're gonna, not going to get there unless he refines us 
and changes us from the inside out. And so it's a season, I believe, where this is happening all over the earth because when there's shaking, when there's change, we have to change too. Or else he cannot use us. And by the way, when God, my conviction now is when God does anything on the earth, if he does it alone, it's a tragedy for him. He loses. He is looking for people that he can partner with to do his will on the earth. And if he doesn't do that, if he doesn't find it, he'll do it on his own. But it's not his desire. His desire is for friends that will work with him to accomplish his redemptive purpose on the earth. And you might say, well, you know, I'm just this or I'm just that or I can't do that or I can't do this. Most of the time, excuse me, you just need to show up and he will use you. You just need to make a little step across the street, across the city, across the nation, maybe across the world. And it will be amazing what God will do in response to your faith. So it's uh, so I just had two real messages. One of them is. This is a really key time, not only for us in Israel, we're in a, a, a real shaking as well in this whole thing. But, you know, one of these things about praying for Israel and praying for the Jewish people, for the, their calling to be a light to all the nations, it's not for them. It's for the faithfulness of God, because if he's faithful to his first covenant people, the scripture says you can be confident that he'll be faithful to you. But if he's not faithful to them then you have doubt that he will be faithful to you. So this whole thing about God breaking covenant with people and making covenants with nations and, and choosing this people and now how it goes in and how we've come in, a lot of it has to do with him ultimately showing his faithfulness to his promises. Now, some of us have had to wait a long time for a lot of promises. I mean, I, I think when I was involved in the beginning of this Isaiah 19 highway, I thought, well, maybe I'll never see the fulfillment. I'll just, like in Romans 11, I'll just welcome it from far away. And it will, I'll, you know, I'll get to see some of the future coming into the present. But I am, I'm excited to say that I'm seeing more and more of this fulfilled in my lifetime than I believed I ever would. And a lot of it has to do with these enemies being reconciled that will be a blessing to all the earth. You won't read it on the news. It won't get out there. But believe me, there is something that's happening that's shaking. Now, one of the things that also is happening at the same time is that you're seeing some of the most gruesome reports and details coming out of this side of the world. And these will continue. Why will they continue? Because the enemy, who's the, who's the prince of the power of the airwaves wants to get people as fearful as possible so they will not do anything. But the scripture is clear in Matthew 24 and 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the nations and then the end will come. So that means the temptation when all this is happening is to draw back, is to pull back. And this is where we need to go forward as much as possible. In other words, our faith doesn't work very good if we all stay in the light. It works really good when we step into the darkness. And in a sense, we're, com- we're, we're, we're called to be a counterculture movement. We're called to walk upstream. We're called to walk into dark places. No matter how uncomfortable it is, people used to say, well, no, man, you must be so full of faith and so full of compassion. I said, are you kidding me? When I have to do this, I struggle with it as much as everybody else. But as we know, the minute we step out, what happens? God meets us on the way. Whether we walk across the street, whether we go across the city, 
whether we walk across a classroom, whatever it is, when we obey God and be reconciled or to share what we have, he meets us on the way. And that's one of the blessings of walking in faith, isn't it? You can't figure it out before it happens. You cannot. You are called. We are called to walk out not knowing where we're going. And it's a risk. Um, one of our things as a family was um, about uh, 15 years ago now. We, um, we were living in Israel. Our kids were in school. And, and I decided, you know what? It's time for us as a family to go live on the Syrian border of Turkey as a family. So we're going to take the kids out of school at 11, 13, 15 and 17. And we're going to go live in a city where no one speaks English or Hebrew. And they're going to learn Turkish. And we're going to help the church in this city of a million people. Mostly Kurdish Muslims, Turks as well. And uh, I, I thought to myself, this will either be the greatest thing we've ever done or the biggest disaster. And if you've come to that place with things that God has spoken to you about, you're on good territory. It's either going to be the greatest thing that's ever happened or it's going to be the biggest disaster. Because if God doesn't step in... We're doomed. Do you know that today, 15 years later, our kids measure everything in their lives by that year? Everything that's happened is measured by what happened at that time. We dumped them into a total new place, no friends, nothing. And how God worked in their hearts and, and moved during that time was just an amazing experience for them. And people said to even my even close friends of mine said, you can't do this. Don't do this. You don't know what's going to happen. I said, you're right. I absolutely don't know what's happened. But when Abraham walked out of Haran on his way to the promised land, he had no idea where he was going. You have to go out not knowing where you're going. We would it would be nice if it was another way. I'm telling you, it would be really nice if it was another way. But God has called us into uncertainty. But we have confidence in him. Amen just want to read um, a scripture that was really important for me. Turn with me if you have the Hebrews 10. Um, we're on the uh, we just finished. We're in the middle of for us as uh, as Jewish believers in Israel. We're, uh, these are the high holidays. So we started out with the, the day of the blowing of the trumpet. We went to Yom Kippur, which was just a few days ago. And um, and now we're about ready to start the Feast of Tabernacles, which is really important for us because this is the this is the holiday where we're commanded to rejoice. That's it. We build these stupid little buildings in our in our balconies or in our backyards. We eat dinner in them. We eat. We sleep in them if we can. We read our Bibles in them and we invite our friends to come over. It's kind of like Christmas. OK, except, you know, we're, and we're walking around. We're checking out everybody else's tabernacle. Oh, look at that one. That one's really good. Oh, look what they did there and everything. And so it's kind of a bit like Christmas and decorations and everything. Everybody's putting their little house together. And it's reminded of us leaving the. You know, leaving Egypt and coming to the promised land, we built these little booths, these little tents in the wilderness. But it's also the ones, the tents that we build in our fields because we're bringing in the fall harvest. By the way, you get Thanksgiving from this holiday. Thanksgiving is the Christian Sukkot, okay, or the Christian Feast of Tabernacles. So it's a really fun time and it's one of the only holidays where you're commanded to rejoice. I mean, most of our holidays, you know, we're commanded to rejoice. But uh, this one is one we're really commanded to rejoice. So we have a good time with this one. So anyway, we got just got through um, Yom Kippur, which is uh, the day of fasting and everything. And it's a time where we as Jewish believers pray for the, the salvation of our nation. It's a time for where we um, 
we get together, we fast as well in identification, but we're praying that they will see that this is the lamb, you know, that takes away the sin of the world. So in Hebrews chapter 10, right at the end, it talks about um, us being patient for the promises. Okay. And, uh, you know, a lot of our, our lives lived based on a promise. And a plan that God's had that we're waiting for fulfillment. We're holding on to promises. Some have been we've seen fulfilled. Some are not have not been fulfilled yet. But I love this kind of description in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. Because as Jewish believers on, um, on Yom Kippur, we read through the book of Hebrews. We get together, we read the entire book. Okay, in the afternoon. So just as we were reading through this, I was reminded of this. I was getting ready this morning. So I just want to read a couple scriptures from it. I'm going to start um, a little bit farther back in I'm going to start in verse 19 because this is kind of part of the, the going into the most holy place and has a, such a strong um, picture for us of Yom Kippur, of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but uh, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Just skip up now to verse uh, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere. Some say to the saving of our souls. There is such an incredible promise that has to be that that has uh, that has with it perseverance in the midst of difficulty. And so just. For you and for all the, that you're believing for and the promises that God's given for you, I just want to say, do not shrink back today. Persevere to the saving of your souls. In other words, that's our inheritance. That God actually transforms our inner man. That he actually saves our souls, not only just our spirits, but our souls as well. And so I just want to just end the time just praying for you Praying for us in the Middle East that God will make us faithful in this season. That as we go through this time of refining 
and, uh, you know, just uh, disciplining and change that we will hold on to these promises and see them fulfillment. And for you, that you will hold on to the promises that God has made for you. Amen. 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 Let's stand up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your, your word is something that we have put our lives to stand on, Lord. It's our foundation. But Lord, as well, we need your spirit actively working in us, God, that we would have endurance to hold on to the promise, to see him who is invisible, to realize that we have a lasting inheritance and that, Lord, that you would give us, even in these days, an eternal perspective, not just for this earth, but for your kingdom, which is coming soon. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to an inheritance. And that inheritance is amazing. It's wonderful. But Lord, you've also called us to walk in your footsteps as a wounded victor. Lord, you were, you were pierced. You were beaten. Those that followed you walked through those same things. But Lord, in the end, you were victorious over the enemy. And Lord, thank you that you've called us to walk in those same footsteps. And so, Lord, just as that prophetic word came forth today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what does it mean to walk with a broken heart? Not for ourselves, but Lord, for this world, for this world that you desire to save and to rescue. And so, Lord, even as our heart breaks, God, give us a vision that's on the other side of victory. Because he who is promised is faithful. And so, Lord, we just ask today, God, for this season that you would increase our faith, God, that you would increase our vision, that you would make our hearts continue to stay soft, that we can hear your voice, God, though that we would make choices according to your word, not according to the prince of the power in the air and the pressures and everything that's coming upon us right now. But, Lord, we stay faithful and true to you and your promises over our lives, over our families, over the nation, and for the world. Lord, because you are a covenant-keeping God. And we say amen today to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, in Yeshua's name, amen. 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 Thank you.